Welcome to the Style Free Podcast, where a father and son detail and digress on a wide variety of topics within music, art, family, and culture. Your hosts are Professor Stephen J. Tyson Sr. and Jr., also known as Dad and Papa. In today's episode, we interview Reverend Dr. J. Anthony Stoltz, also known as Sensei Tony, Buddhist minister, educator, author, and martial arts expert. Throughout our conversation, we discuss many of Tony's personal interests, as well as how he discovered his path to spirituality, the Order of the Dragonfly Sangha, and the intersection of religion, science, spirituality, and entertainment. Hey, Dad, it's great to be back here with you for another episode of Style Free. It's always great being with you, Papo. Well, we are absolutely delighted to have Reverend Dr. J. Anthony Stoltz join us for this episode of the Style Free Podcast. As some of the listeners may know, Sensei Tony, as he's sometimes called, is the founder and director of the Dragonfly Sangha and the Blue Lotus School of Mindfulness. And he also was the creator of the Four Directions System of Mindfulness, as well as the Blue Lotus School of Mindful Martial Arts. He's a leader in contemporary spirituality. His works on mindful living have appeared in Mindful Magazine, Lion's Roar, and Buddha Dharma. And he is just one of the all-round wonderful human beings that I've ever had the privilege to encounter. And we're just, again, so delighted to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you, man. That's beautiful. <laughs> I love you yes. guys. Love yeah. you too, man. And honored to be here. Thank you. This is beautiful. I love this. You know, it, it's so free that both Papa and I have, uh, we have equal relationship in certain yeah. ways, different relationship, but equal in terms of the intensity of the love we have for you and the work that you do. And we wanted to talk about some of the experiences that you've had growing up, some of the things in your formative years that shaped you to follow the path that you're on right now. We'll touch on some of the influences that we also share in terms of film and the martial arts. And sure. uh, just, just to give uh, the audience an opportunity to really get to know a really, truly unique human being. Well, thank you, man. Well, I'll start with the words of Dr. Strange. Forget everything you think you know. <laughs> <laughs> and here we go. <laughs> well, I listened to the podcast where you were talking about that, and mm. that was very influential on my early interest in the East, along with Bruce and Kung Fu, most you, definitely. You know, we're talking about the ancient one. The idea that Papo had brought up in a previous episode, the idea that people who are not Asian or not a particular ethnic group can play roles for a particular ethnic group. Mm -hmm. And in the particular film, Papo, you could pick up on this and talk about the character of the ancient one in the film, Dr. Strange. We were talking about, you know, what it was like for Tony, for you to be seen with the community of people who would normally associate the martial arts with Asian individuals and how accepted you were. What were some of the thoughts that you had about the ancient one when you were reading the comic book, but also looking at the film? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I dug the movie. I like the idea of, you know, being creative with things, allowing new characters maybe to have new representation and things like that. I think that's all cool. Uh, when in the comic book, he was a Tibetan monk. He was a Tibetan teacher. And so, you know, I've read different things. And what's interesting is Tilda Swinton, who played that character in the movie, she is, uh, considers herself Buddhist. 
And so for her, she even brought her a llama to the set so that they could really try to, and I don't think the movie did it, but really try to bring out that this is the journey towards individuation and awakening, you know, and kind of try to illustrate that. Mm-hmm. Of course, Benedict Cumberbatch is also considers himself Buddhist. So it was very interesting that they would go into that. Now, I don't know if any of these things are true, but one of the interviews with Tilda Swinton, she seemed to imply and tried to do it very nicely that there was a particular market that did not want to see a Tibetan. Oh, wow. That was the reason why she was chosen instead of a Tibetan person because it was very clear in the comic. He's a Tibetan, yeah, you know, and yeah. And that's what was intimated. I don't think anybody wanted to hurt anyone's feelings or kind of go beyond that. But I did read an interview where she kind of intimated that there was a particular market did not want a Tibetan held up as a high role. So that was one of the reasonings I felt bad for her because I think she did her, you know, from what I read in interviews with her in regular magazines, but also in Buddhist journals, that she's really devoted to these practices and teachings. And so she was going to do her best with whatever the script and editing would allow to try to convey that wisdom. And and certainly Benedict Mm -hmm. Cumberbatch as well. He even likened it in one interview to the story of the Buddha, like when he was a doctor and he was this famous surgeon, it was all ego, 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 ego. And that through this injury, and he learns to transcend himself. And then that transcending of self leads to wanting to help others. I mean, they both felt that, you know, at the end of the day, there was a lot of stuff that was in there that was edited out that they felt, you know, and the same thing happened with Bruce. You know, when Bruce did Enter the Dragon, you know, that first part where he has that long conversation with his teacher? Yep, yep. And, and it's so critical to the end, right? When he's in the Hall of Mirrors. Yep, right? Breaking all the, yeah, because yeah, when you hear right? the voice yeah. and it's like, <laughs> you're like yeah. without that intro, it's like, where right. is this voice coming from what and what is he talking is about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I <laughs> know. And, and there was this, you know, it's the same sort of thing, you know, and that's just, you know, filmed. Everybody's, you know, trying to figure out what makes it marketable. But, I think it was like that. They both said there were parts of Doctor Strange that they shot, and they did, but they weren't in the final edit. And, um, you know, that's just the nature of the beast, I guess. Yeah. But that's So that's my thoughts on it. I, I like Tilda Swinton. I, I really respect her as an actress. If you watch her and other stuff she does, there's always this sort of zen thing that comes through. She really, that was her intention. You know, so I know that from reading these interviews, some of them in Buddhist journals where they were just saying, yeah, that was our intention. Because they wanted to respect the idea that, well, Doctor Strange was really about the mystical and all those sort of things. That At the heart of it, it was his journey towards enlightenment. So that's how they kind of saw it. And I think the earlier, you know, the Steve Ditko and the earlier versions of that were really riding on that wave of the seven, late 60s, 70s, interest in the east mm-hmm. and did it in a fun way you know and i don't think they were ever necessarily particularly promoting buddhism but it was definitely dharma we would say yeah. in the buddhist in the buddhist world we often say well it may not be buddhism but it's dharma <laughs> <laughs> you know it's interesting we talk about the dna of things there have been some who've indicated that the mirror scene as you said definitely connects with the teacher 
but it mm. also, from a cinematic point of view, connects with a film that was done in 1947 with Orson Welles called The Lady from Shanghai. Oh, yes, yes, and yes. It's a scene with mirrors in there. And I was thinking about yeah. the Shanghai reference and China and, you know, all yeah. of that. And then later on, you That's see great. something similar in, in John Wick. I think it mm. might have been John Wick, the second installation. Mm -hmm. So uh, it seems like there's a kind of thread there, you know, maybe different meanings somewhat, but. Well, we say, like I said, it's Dharma. For us, that means it's universal. That's why the three principles are like, regardless of the Buddhist school, this is what unites us in teaching. For me, anytime I see one of those principles being illustrated, it doesn't matter where it comes from. To me, it's the same wisdom because it's universal. But Dr. Strange was one of those ones where it was like, it was just feeding all of that for me. <laughs> and, 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 and Shang-Chi, Shang Master yeah, Shang-Chi. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that movie, and, the, the one that they just did a couple years ago, that one was really good. The way and, Marvel put that one together. And Iron Fist. Yeah, that, yeah. The, Netflix, the Netflix Iron Fist was kind of lame, but, you know. It wasn't that great. <laughs> no, it wasn't that great. I mean, all those things came out of that, that period where I think – and I want to say this carefully because, or mindfully, because I don't want to ever, you know, anything I say to not lead people towards oneness. But mm -hmm. I think what was happening in our time then was there was, there's this thing in sociology that they call the affect imagery. Like when a culture is united around a symbol and when that symbol for some reason no longer has the same power anymore, you know, nature abhors a void. And because symbol, I think, is so much a part of our epigenetic way of being that, that something else comes in to fill that, that space and void. And I think that's why, even though the, the martial arts movies were often just goofy and kind of just free-for-alls in terms of everybody was kung fu fighting, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Carl yeah. Douglas. Yeah, 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 everybody was kung fu fighting. <laughs> right? you know, but I think... Even with all of it, you know, you kind of like the Wu Tang Clan talks about it. You know, everybody, mm -hmm, yeah. you were you were getting you were getting it there. You know, it was coming through, and it it changed you, yeah, in a good way. Yep. You know, so that's why I think that stuff's brilliant. And uh, you know, comics for me, like I did, I actually wrote a paper when I was in grad school about the the mythic difference between Batman and Superman. And I compared, and again, I hope nobody takes this the wrong way, but I compared Superman to the story of Jesus, and I compared Batman to the story of Buddha. And then the the one where Christian Bale played Batman, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that series, I think it was, I forget the, other, the director's name. Christopher Chris Nolan. Nolan. Yeah. Yeah. They went back to that, you know, where he goes and has that same kind of experience with a teacher and but the difference for me was that Batman had to learn all those skills. He had to learn to take everything. He had no supernatural abilities. And so he had to take everything that he had within him to become that and uh, enhance it through his technology. Mm -hmm. Whereas Superman, you know, like all superheroes, they just have this power, right? <laughs> it's, it's my argument in Star Wars for the difference between Luke and the gal who was the new in the, the new movies. She just kind of all had it already. It was all there, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and it didn't show that process of getting there. Yeah. And I just think that's that's so important, you know, that even if it ends up being some kind of magical Jedi power, 
gosh, you got to practice. You got to work to get there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it was um, Wayne Shorter, the saxophonist, who made a reference to that same idea uh, in re- referencing Captain Marvel, which came out mm. around the same time as Superman. Right. Where Captain Marvel basically had to earn his ah. powers as such and develop them. You know, there as, it is. The Superman where, you know, there he is. Boom. There it is. Yeah. Absolutely. Now you started out, actually, we got to know you first in Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. when I was a faculty member at the University of Pittsburgh in Johnstown. But your roots actually go back to New York. Yeah. Well, my dad was an entrepreneur, so we were always moving around based on his business. And I spent a significant amount of time in New York State in Gardnertown, outside of Newburgh. Yeah, I had some really fun years there two places in new york and then pennsylvania and i think when we first met steve jr papo was enrolled at the montessori school oh yeah he was just a little guy yeah (laughs) 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 and your wife and beautiful sister Mm, uh, christine both of them beautiful Uh, they were papo's teachers right and i think it, it was at a open house I walked in and I think he was sitting at a table and there was an empty spot there. And, you know, that's right. And I noticed she had a shirt. I, I thought it might've been a Bruce Lee shirt. I think he, it was a Carl Jung shirt, <laughs> whatever think, it was. <laughs> yeah. I, it was either one, one of the two. I used to wear t-shirts with a sport coat for fancy events, you know, <laughs> but I did either one of those would have caught my attention though. And yep. they did. I, th- I, I think I think it was Carl Young that time. Yeah. So we started a conversation and one thing led to another. And somehow we started talking about Bruce Lee, martial arts. I don't know exactly how we went down that road, but nevertheless, we did. And I got to finally meet someone in town because I was relatively new in the community who shared a similar uh, appreciation for Bruce Lee. But also, I think we both came from a similar background. When I was coming up, I remember in high school, there were films playing at the Park Theater in Yonkers, like Five Fingers of Death. (laughs) (laughs) And then later, Enter the Dragon. And there was Sunny Chiba films. And it just went on and on, you know. And that was was the flavor of the times. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even though you're much younger than I am, uh, you, you, you do. <laughs> thank you thank you <laughs> i'll take it i'll take it <laughs> but you, take but it. you definitely vibed with those um memories oh, of yeah. films and so could you talk about the martial arts or people like bruce lee and so forth when did that begin for you were you always interested in uh martial arts and i, I know you also went to into comic books oh yeah that a little bit oh later. yeah yeah I don't remember the exact conversation we had, but it was one of those times where you meet someone and you just like, you've always known each other. And I think that's how our friendship has gone on for all these many years. I mean, I was always a spiritual kid growing up. I was obsessed with spirituality and, you know, just always felt very close to those things. It was in a little church in New York where I had my first sort of experience of knowing that this is what I want to do with my life. And I was like around maybe six years old. Are you saying yeah. that you wanted to be, uh, what, what kind of church was this, uh, first of all? Uh, that church was a Methodist church. A Methodist, okay. Mm-hmm. So you had thoughts about be, becoming a, uh, a minister? Yeah, oh yeah. 
Yeah. I, uh, it was one, I, I remember it was one Sunday after church and I went off and there was like a sacristy, uh, this Methodist church. So usually they're kind of low church, but this was, this guy wore robes and he had a sacristy where he, I guess he lit incense and stuff. And I remember being back in there and just knowing at that moment that this is what I wanted to do. And yeah, I had that. And I was about, I guess, 10 years old. There was this show that came on TV called Kung Fu. And I, like so many, I'm sure, just fell in love with the whole thing. And I didn't know anything about it, but I just felt drawn to it. It felt like home. There was something about it. And I know I'm not alone in that. You know, it really drew me. And so I said to my dad, you know, I said, I, I don't know what this is, but I said, I really would like to learn this. And then as karma would be, as karmic circumstances would have it, Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon came out that same year. And so my, yeah, so my dad took me to see Enter the Dragon. And I mean, I was smitten. And, you know, the parts for me, I love the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> but the parts for me were like the beginning, you know, where he's talking to the teacher, his thing with the student. And I just, oh, my God, I was like, this is like where I belong. And so that's how it began. And then the other karmic circumstance, I was in an assembly or in a gym class and a karate teacher, a Kempo karate teacher was there. And he said, I would like to have some volunteers. I'm, he's going he's gonna to do a demonstration at assembly. And this was uh, my first real teacher. And he picked me out of the audience. You know, I wasn't, he just picked me. Yeah. And, you know, I learned one move, a little throw from him. And uh, I went up on stage with him and that's where it took off. You know, I was just in love. Wow. Uh, so Kenpo was the first style mm -hmm. that you explored now your your appreciation for bruce lee like you said it was in the beginning of the film where he's engaging with his teacher and uh, yeah. we we know that that bruce lee was a philosophy major and very mm -hmm. much interested in the life of the mind could you say what it was about bruce beyond let's say martial arts what was it about him as a philosopher let's say that that attracted you as you got to know more about him well, yeah, the martial arts was like the entry point, but it was just like with Kung Fu. The martial arts was really cool, and I wanted to do that, but I was really interested because of being a sort of a weird spiritual kid, I really wanted to know more about this. And so I really was equally or more so attracted to the writings of Bruce that were philosophical. And, you know, of course, I didn't know at the time, but a lot of Bruce's quotes, he was paraphrasing Buddhist teachers, and I didn't know it at the time, but I just really dug the whole philosophy. And in fact, I wanted to say to you guys, you said style free. I thought, well, that might have been a Bruce Lee reference, right? Because he was all about <laughs> yeah. getting past styles and yep. just, you know, the yep. person. Free but I style. just, yeah, but I just loved his philosophy, which I learned, you know, of course, as time went on, I learned that that was Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. And I think the greatest thing about Bruce me was the idea that it wasn't so much about the style but it was more about your personal expression and the freedom of personal expression and so that became kind of a hallmark of my life but i would say that's one of the things that for me 
has always stood out about him. You know, doing things your own way, really respecting and learning everything you can from tradition, but never being bound by it in a sense where you didn't, you couldn't express your own unique stuff. Now, it's interesting you should say that. That's really fascinating because Bruce, of course, being somewhat iconoclastic, kind of pushed against the boundaries, Mm -hmm. you know, of the classical mess, if you will. Yeah, the Marshall. Uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah, the different schools, like you say, learning from them, but Mm -hmm. not being bound by them. Along your way, have you found that within the religious community, let's say, or spiritual community, people who might tend to be beholden to a particular style of religion or school of religion? And have you navigated that using Bruce Lee somewhat as a, a model? Absolutely. You know, I mean, in martial art, my first class I had was actually Kokushinkai with a friend of my dad's. And then uh, I did a little bit of that in Kempo. And as I journeyed through different, studying with different teachers, yeah, it was Bruce's voice in my head, like learn, absorb, absorb everything you can here, um, but don't let it limit you. And so sometimes that created trouble, even in the martial arts world, where if you were a particular stylist, whether it was Korean style, Japanese style, you know, you were expected to sort of curate that tradition. And I respect that, you know, for some people, that's really important. But for me, it was really more about that personal expression. So I would stay in a system till I reached a higher rank, like a a brown belt or red belt. And then I would kind of move on because I really felt like I didn't want to just represent one style. And when I started my own martial arts approach, I called it American freestyle because I really didn't know what to call it. But it was really from that sense of wanting to take what I had learned from all these other great teachers, and then how do I apply it myself? So yeah, you run up against people that are traditionalists that don't like that. You know, there was a time when I opened up my first school, where it was like the Wild West. You know, you would have teachers from other traditional schools that would come to my school and challenge you and stuff like that. So it was kind of crazy. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Yeah, it was, you know. (laughs) That that sounds like something straight out of a Bruce Lee flick. (laughs) Right, right. I'm not making this up, man. Yeah, yeah. Guys who come to your dojo, you know, want to lay down, you know, lay it down. And I was fortunate in that, um, I'm going to be careful because I respect names and persons, right? Absolutely. I remember I had my first big school. I was like 19. And it was a big gym. It was like 7,000 square feet. It had a free weight gym and it had racquetball. And I had probably about 60 students. And I had two black belts from another traditional school came and challenged me. So I would usually, what I would do is, if they were respectful, I would usually just say, okay, well, let's wait till my class is over. Because they would usually come during class. And then I'd be willing to put on the gear and spar with them, you know. So the first two guys that came to me like that, the first time it happened, I sparred with the one guy, and after about 20 minutes of sparring, he and the other guy both said, hey, can we study with you? And I said, sure. I said, but you better check it out with your teacher, because <laughs> right? I don't want any crap from him, you know, which I'm already getting. And, um, you know, ironically, that guy, I don't know, he was cool. He, In fact, I did meet him through some interesting circumstances which I'm not saying names so I can say, but he ended up in prison. And when I first started doing prison work, he was one of the first guys I worked with. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so, you know, but he had, he had, a, he came and apologized to me and said, you know, that it was wrong. And 
and he was a he was a big guy. He was a big, well known martial artist. Then another time it happened, and I was fortunate. I said, "Okay, I'll wait till class is over." And I waited. This is when I had another school, and I was dumb. You know, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have waited. Whatever, you know. But I did, you know. And these two guys confronted me, and I said, "Okay, I'll wait for you." You know, and I waited after class. You know, real like sort of samurai style, and uh, they never showed up. And I, I found out a lot later that the teacher that we had shared, he found out about it and told them to stop. And uh, unfortunately, that same group and a friend of mine who I had used to fight in tournaments with, he had kind of broke away too. He was different in that I was doing my own thing. I was doing freestyle and he was still representing this traditional school. And so they went to his school and unfortunately, he ended up putting one of the guys in the hospital and ended up getting arrested and even did some jail time. And so I'm thankful that the universe kept me from ever getting that kind of situation. Yeah. And it actually came to an end in that area because it came to a case where the judge said, look, if anybody does this again, it's going to be considered an act of terrorism. And that was the end of it. But I'll, I'll tell you, man, it was crazy. And I never, you know, went around like challenging people or anything. Like, I was just doing my own thing and live and let live. But back then too, I was kind of young and dumb. And so if somebody, you know, came, I was like, all right, let's do it. Let's dance, you know. But I never wanted to be violent towards someone. I just wanted everybody to kind of learn to get to get, get along together. But that's how it worked out. So that was the the pushback with martial arts and I never experienced it after that. You know, after that, it changed, and I never had any circumstance like that. But around when yeah, that, was that? Like the nineties? Uh, that would have been that have been the eighties. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, early eighties. And you know, I loved fighting. You know, I I was fortunate. I won the All Valley. You know, I'm, I'm talking about Karate Kid. You know, the All Valley. <laughs> <laughs> but there, but there was a big championship for the all Valley, so to speak at UPJ. And, um, I won that tournament as a, you know, young, young guy. I was only like 16. So I, I got, I fought in tournaments, was in the U S nationals and got second place there. And I, I kickboxed a little bit and, uh, me and a couple other guys, a few other guys would get together and we would do what we called Texas freestyle. And it was basically sort of like early, MMA, you know, where it was kind of like anything goes. Yeah. So I, I love fighting, you know, and that was my problem. I mean, I, I like it too much. Um, yeah. I'm very comfortable fighting. You know, it, it's the peacemaking I had to learn. And, and that was always in my heart. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. I, I just had to mature, you know. Um, but And in the spiritual world, it was not quite the same, but it's the same kind of deal. You know, there are some people who believe that their style or their their group fell out of heaven. And so they're the only way, the only path. Mm. You know, I understand that point of view. And I also really respect the idea of people who feel they want to keep a tradition alive. They don't want to make it uh, watered down. And why, why is that, uh, uh, Tony? Why do you think it's important that you've taken a, a different perspective you have respect for the traditions in some way and and yet at the same time you found doing something differently is that because for you this is the path of your own personal self-expression as you alluded to earlier and that for it to be codified or to be 
Now, everybody has to believe the way that I believe or follow the path that I follow would yeah. be just putting yourself back in the same situation that you were responding to in the first place. Is, is that fair enough to say? Or? Yeah, yeah. Well, you just end up back in the same, as Bruce called, classical mess. I remember like an early tournament I fought in. There was a back in the day in the 70s, tournaments were usually open or closed. And so open meant any style could fight and perform and, and closed meant it was only for one type of style and i remember i had went to a japanese clothes tournament but i had learned all these kicks from the korean styles and i remember i won this one tournament because it was like nobody had ever seen a hook kick before and it it was kind of funny and shocking because i every time they come in with a front kick reverse kick i just lean back through a hook kick and ironically now today when you watch the olympics they're all thrown hook kicks yeah. So it was just this thing where back then it was like very rigid. And now even people who say, well, I'm a hardcore Shotokan or whatever, they're doing techniques from all over the place. Mm. And, um, you know, when I was reading martial art, I remember I was really inspired by Gichin Fonokoshi, who was the so-called founder of Shotokan karate. If you look at the Okinawan guys and Japanese guys, you know, like Funakoshi, I mean, they never thought there should be styles. They always thought each teacher will learn and create their own dojo, their own place, and they'll do things slightly different. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it should be. But humans have a tendency, I think, to... It's like if you're a fan of Star Wars or you're a fan of Star Trek or something like that, Star Wars is all there is, or Star Trek is all there is. You know, I think there's a human tendency for humans just to kind of fill their group is the group. Yeah, yeah. And I, and that's unfortunate because I think that in-group, out-group thing is one of the biggest hindrances to our evolution, yeah. whether it be martial arts or spirituality or human being. Yeah, I definitely agree. It also makes me think, especially being a white dude in these traditionally East Asian practices, like how has that been as far as the in-group, out-group acceptance and then... I guess, transcendence and whenever it comes to the depth and authenticity that you have within these cultural practices between Buddhism and martial arts. Well, I would say that I didn't experience it as much as some of the people I knew did, but there was a time, it's not, I don't think it's true at all anymore, but there was a time like in Japanese style, if you were a gaijin, if you were a Caucasian, they never thought you could really get there. You could train, you could study, but you wouldn't really necessarily get there. And from, you know, reading Bruce's biography and, and all that, you know, that when he opened it up to non-Chinese students, he got the same kind of flack from groups. So there was a time where that was the case. I have to say that my teachers, several of them were Asian, and they never treated me differently because of that. And so I, I think, you know, it, it was probably something that was a vestige of that earlier period. And it may still happen, but I, I, I haven't ever seen it myself. But I know that at one time it was true. But, but when I got into it in the 70s, it was starting to kind of fall away. However, I would say this, is that sometimes, unless your teacher was Asian, they wouldn't respect you. Like mm -hmm. if you didn't have a teacher who was Asian, mm -hmm. they didn't think it was real. Regardless of how authentic maybe your teacher was, mm -hmm. they didn't think it was quite as good. <laughs> Because he wasn't Asian, <laughs> yeah, you know. But here I, I was a six foot one. Even at sixteen years old, I was six foot one, 
I only weighed about 120 pounds, but I was trying to be Bruce Lee. So I had his right. hair cut exactly the same, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I, I'm wishing I was Chinese. So it's just one of those things where I guess I'm grateful that I didn't experience that from my teachers. You know, they, they didn't yeah. seem to, they didn't seem to care about that and that's to their credit, you yeah. know, but, but I'm sure in the beginning, just like Bruce talks about, it was a challenge. So Tony, that, that's really interesting. How did you then develop an interest in Buddhism? Well, like I said, you know, a lot of the stuff that Bruce was teaching, you know, I, I later, later realized, oh, well, this is, he's paraphrasing a lot of Zen teachers and a lot of Buddhist teachers. And his language, if you look at it now, you know, like his, his talks about oneness and stuff, it's all right there. And I realized that this is where it was coming from. Plus, Kung Fu and the opening of Enter the Dragon led me to this you know, realization about Buddhism. At that time, 1973, <laughs> in Johnstown, or we were living in Somerset, Pennsylvania, there wasn't anything. And I remember the first books I could find at the library were books by, uh, there was a guy, Sam Houston, who wrote about different religious groups, and he had a chapter on Zen, and uh, then Alan Watts. And so I started becoming interested in it. I would say it was largely Suzanne. And then um, when I, it was one, uh, again, karmic thing, I was working in the Episcopal Church. I had already kind of pursued my vocation. And Becky and I used to go to Frederick, Maryland and stay at the Holiday Inn. We didn't have a lot of money, but we would, we would just go for a night at the Holiday Inn. They had a cool pool and, and, <laughs> and, and goofy golf, you know. Uh, and I would, I would always, anywhere I went, I would look in the yellow pages to see if there was a meditation center. And so I met my Tibetan teacher that way. I found the address and it was about 10, 15 minutes away up the top of Gambrel State Park, at the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And I just, I had this incredibly oh, special moment with that teacher and we connected. And so my first real study and I took Bodhisattva vows and shaved my head for the first time was with him. My first real teacher was Tibet. Oh, wow. uh, oh. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I hate to say too much because it makes me sound really weird, but I just had lots of personal experiences and some I've written about that just kind of kept driving me in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. And at the same time I was studying with my Rinpoche I was also reading the works of Dalai Lama, the Tenzin Gyatso, and it just all was gelling. And I was starting to kind of use that in my practice every day. And I was kind of doing this hybrid thing, you know, working in the Christian church, but like doing all this stuff on the side. And I was trying to figure it out. Alan Watts, who became this great, vehicle for teaching about eastern spirituality Mm -hmm. started out as an episcopal priest and so i thought it was the karma beck was a cradle episcopalian i was raised in the baptist free church sort of thing my mom went wherever she liked the preacher but beck was in this this church and i learned to really love that they had smells bells and incense and stuff and i really dug that and I thought, well, I'll just be like Alan Watts, you know, I'll work in the Epistle Church, I'll do my my Buddhist thing, and that'll be the story. Um, that didn't quite work out, but that's where I was at then. So yeah, it was then. And then 
my second teacher, the real teacher, was Bernie Glassman, the Zen teacher. Mm. Um, now, some of my martial arts teachers were also very deeply into Buddhism, one Korean, one Chinese, and one had actually been a monk when he was younger. So they were also kind of teaching me about Buddhism at that time. So you, I could say that they were. And then I don't want to leave out this person because she's really one of the most important ones. My aunt, my aunt Kay, uh, who, can, can I let Basil out? He's making a lot of noise <laughs> yes. here. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah, so my aunt Kay met my uncle in Hawaii, and she was Japanese. When I got into Buddhism, and I went to her, you know, because I knew she was Buddhist, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I became her favorite nephew. <laughs> you know, she was a, a really wonderful teacher. She followed a Lotus Sutra school, and she was magnificent. And, you know, we kept that relationship all up until she died. But she was a huge influence, too. In fact, she wanted to take me to Japan when I was 12. Oh, wow. But my parents wouldn't let me go. <laughs> and now, to my dad's credit, he did take me to Japan in 2004. We went with an entourage, my guys. That's but, cool. And my dad was into this stuff. That's probably what got so strong because my dad, it's all karma, right? When my dad was younger, he, ha he had a friend who was in the martial arts, learned it in, in, the, in the war and when he came home was my dad's buddy when my dad was like 17 and they had shaved their heads and were doing Zen things. And it was really interesting how all that sort of comes together. You know, when I was born, actually, this is no joke. When I was born, they called me Buddha. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> when I was in the hospital, I had like, my mom still has a photo of me as a baby. And it has the word Buddha above it. Wow. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> and you, and your head was bald. <laughs> yeah, right. And I didn't know any of that stuff. I didn't know a lot of that stuff till afterwards. That's um, incredible. Yeah. That's that's pretty you know? cool. And it's also really cool you talk about this like karmic thing too because, you know, you mentioned your dad and his buddy and here we are, you know, I'm a kid, little kid growing up in Johnstown and there's my dad and his buddy talking about Bruce Lee and you know I'm like five <laughs> six seven watching Enter the Dragon having my mind blown and hearing all these philosophies and then getting the understanding of these things from y'all it's really cool how these things also cycle in itself too and then academically yeah. I'm learning from your wife Becky as my Montessori teacher you know in preschool <laughs> and, and so like so much immersion in just learning the building blocks of just academics but then even aside that the building blocks of spirituality and discipline and you know i end up practicing martial arts and all of these things i'm also learning from y'all too so it's really cool how that also circles yeah. its way around in in other ways too yeah it's a beautiful thing so you went from a young child got in, interested in the martial arts well spirituality was was mm. early on Mm -hmm. uh, and then the martial arts, and that helped you in a lot of different ways to um, really deal with your own emotions and so forth. And, you know, we live in a society now, as you know all too well, where there's a great deal of conflict, not just in this country, obviously, you know, around the world, and it's certainly been with us. But how have you taken some of the practices that you've learned in terms of your spirituality, in terms of martial arts? Because 
There are some who say that a lot of the conflict that we see on the outside is really a manifestation of the internal conflict on the inside that we all have to deal with in some way or another. So I'm curious to know, through your practice, and you've written books on on engaged Buddhism, for example, how do you help others find a way to deal more effectively with these kinds of uh, internal conflicts so that you don't see them manifesting as readily as, as you might tend to see? Well, I can, I can say that you know, as I think everyone ought to, is you got to start with yourself. And I agree with you completely that I think internal conflicts always lead to the external. When I was a very young guy, around this same time, this is really kind of interesting, I was also a very angry young man. And I had a lot of anger. Some of it would come from moving around a lot like we did it wasn't so bad when I was in grade school or younger, but as I got older, it was hard, you know, because you're the new kid in school, and that always led to some initial conflicts, and I really had a lot of anger. And my dad and I, we got along all really well later in life, but we didn't get along very well, and he just wasn't around that much sometimes, and... You know, I I look back on it now and I say, well, geez, you know, he was only 16 when he had me. So, I mean, that's crazy, Mm -hmm. you know. He always used to joke we grew up together and that's Mm -hmm. very true. But I had a lot of rage. I mean, that's why I liked fighting. And it's weird because when you look back at yourself, you think you have a view that's accurate. But I have a friend that I recently reconnected with that knew me in high school. And I'm thinking of myself during this period as this young guy who inwardly is just filled with rage and anger and he's like oh no you were always like the dalai lama (laughs) (laughs) so it's like no i wasn't Uh, yeah and so i think i was always wrestling with that and it came from a sense of separation moving to a new town i was shy and it was very hard to fit in and of course there's lots of groups and schools that want to take advantage of the fact that you're you're new and You know, it was just this sense of separation. I wasn't in harmony with myself. So I will say that the thing that I think part of it drew me so strongly was, you know, when I would listen in church to the minister or the preacher say, you should love your enemies or you should turn the other cheek. Mm -hmm. I really took that sincerely because I really was like, okay, I want to do that. I want to be like that. But I don't know how, because every time somebody slaps me on the cheek, I hit him on the other side of the cheek, you know, and that's what Buddhism was for me. It was like it had the same ideals, but there was like a step by step way to get there. And so that's what really drew me to that practice was like, here's how you get to a place where you can love your enemies. And, you know, I eventually I, I got in trouble with the law. When I was younger, when I was a young teenager, and I was required by probation to see a, a, a counselor. She was a woman, and she was like the first person I felt that really listened to me. And I told her about all these other things I was interested in, and she really just like was a turning point in my life where she helped me to see that all these teachings I so admired, that it was time to embody them. You know, it was time to really live them, not just be interested in them 
intellectually or what have you, but to really do that. And so from that point on, I, I really did. I really tried very hard to practice what I was reading and preaching and teaching. And uh, yeah. that was like the turning point for me. So when I think about all the, you know, over the year, over the last 36 years that I've been doing this, counseling people and giving spiritual direction, I've worked with lots of people in tough places. I started working out in prisons. That's where I first started doing my ministry. And I I really think I was drawn to that because I knew, except for grace, there go I. And I knew that that could have been me so I had a heart of understanding for the guys and women that were in those situations. And I actually, with my dad's help, I started a halfway house that I ran for several years. And so I got to see people really at the lowest points of their life and, and also dealing with a lot of inner turmoil. And some of these people had done some violent things. And it really, really became crystal clear to me that it's because inwardly, there's a lack of harmony within themselves. There's a sense of separation. And I, I think when people have a sense of separation and isolation or alienation, that's when all the weird stuff comes out. That's when all the, the bad stuff comes out. Because I, my own belief is, from my experience, and this is, of course, what Buddhism teaches, is that everyone wants to belong. Yeah. Everybody has, and I even, you know, my my book, Three Principles of Oneness, I talk about even how, how in science now, neurological studies are showing that humans really aren't wired as these sort of selfish beasts with a veneer of civility on top. It's really not like that. And I really believe that everybody's wired for oneness and connection and belonging. And when they can't get that, when that's thwarted for some reason then I think they still want it. But instead of using compassion and love and kindness, they start to use power. And they start to use other ways to sort of have power over others as a way of strangely connecting to them. So I think it's sort of an inverted version. It's like in Stranger Things, the upside down world. It's like the upside down world version of oneness is using power to control others so you can feel a sense of connectedness. So that to me is what it's all about. And my practice is to try to help people to realize that sense of separation is ultimately a delusion and to help them step by step, rediscover their true self and then learn how to express that as freely as they can. So yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that there's a place for outward sort of things right so like if i see someone you know i was telling your dad popular like we were talking about like last time i ever used my martial art was a few years back where i was coming out of this restaurant and mm -hmm. i heard this loud noise in this back room and i stepped back there and there was this guy smacking this girl he had up against the wall and you know it's kind of my thing. I just feel like I try to do what I can to stop that yeah. kind of stuff. So I just went over and kind of flipped them over. He never even heard me. I came up behind him and flipped them over. And then I was telling your dad, I just got into my stance and I really didn't want to hurt him. 
I wanted him to stop. Yeah. And so I never had to lay a hand on him because the most important thing I try to teach people in, in martial arts is, is what Japanese call joriki, where you you have a presence, you have a sense of commitment that people can feel and sense. And so this guy stood there yelling and cursing at me and threatening me, but he never, ever came an inch towards me. And then the police came in and, and arrested him. But that kind of thing for me is the way it works. You know, sometimes you have to intervene from the outside and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think it has to be done from a certain place, right? But most of the work has to come from inside. Like I could stop that person from continuing to harm that woman, but i that's just surface. What really needs to happen is for that person to work out that disharmony within themselves that's it's a both powerful. and both yes. and <laughs> that's very powerful the whole concept of what you just presented is, is powerful it it also makes me think about dr martin luther king and the idea of nonviolence as a practice as a way of life has been very very important in terms of the struggle for civil rights for human rights what is the relationship do you think between the sometimes use of necessary, if you will, use of violence and nonviolence in terms of achieving similar ends. Is there a particular path or is a collective, should one use all tools at their disposal? It's, it's funny. I have our dojo motto behind me is do no harm and take no shit is the, uh, <laughs> you know, so I think you lead with that. Do not harm. I think that's what you have to lead with, but that has to come organically it has to come from within you you have to see that the other is not other it's you it's a part of you like this guy that did this he knew i was committed to what was ever going to happen there and he knew he really not work out well for him if he did something but <laughs> at the same time he I, I i really like to believe that he sensed that i wasn't there to harm him and i've had that experience with others where there's both things at the same time it's like I can't walk past what I saw, for example, that night and not do anything. But at the same time, how I do it and my motivation behind it is the thing. And I always think of myself as a nonviolent person. I'm not a pacifist. So some people will sort of um, conflate those two terms. But for me, they're very different. Like for me, a, a true pacifist would be someone who never would defend themselves right. un under any circumstances. Right. And I don't think that that's required of us to be whole human beings. I think there are times where, just like we have the right to learn to care for ourselves and free ourselves from our negative conditioning, we have the right to protect ourselves. And so I don't see them as an either or. I see it as a both and. So when I start out, as far as martial arts, I mean, it's interesting because in the, some of the original words for martial art meant literally to stop conflict. And so for me, that's what I see the martial arts as. It's a way to stop conflict. And it's really about learning to work with your own aggression and your own anger in a, in a positive way, healthy way, so that you don't express it. The best martial artists never get into fights. Very rarely, yeah. because for them, that's not what that's about at all. 
When I think of nonviolence as an attitude or a belief, it comes for me from the beliefs that you are me. So ultimately, if I'm helping you, I'm helping me. And if I'm hurting you, I'm hurting me. I may not be able to see that right away, but I believe that's the truth. And so that's what motivates me to have that attitude. But at the same time, that doesn't mean someone else has the right to abuse me. And that's, for me, the, the difference between those two groups. And I'm sure there are plenty of pacifists that don't translate it that way. But I remember I had a conversation. I was at a, a Quaker uh, place where I was, so they were very friendly to Buddhists. So sometimes we'd have events there. And I remember some of them saying, you know, no, I'm, I'm pacifist. You know, and if guy came in and wanted to kill me, I would have to let him kill me. You know, that that was just part of, and he considered that to be Christ-like. I just couldn't go there. I, I didn't see that as realistic, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, I respect his opinion, but I just didn't agree with it. And so for me, it's that combination, you know, that I think when you work on yourself inside and you start breaking down the walls of separation that you have experienced, it just naturally arises. Like, I don't think you have to force yourself to feel that way or think that way. It just sort of happens. I really do believe that. When I see someone do something heinous, I really ask this question sincerely, why would I do that? Why would I do that? And that changes everything. Mm. I do the other side too. Like if you see someone do something really cool, I'll say, well, look at me go. (laughs) (laughs) But but that's that's that whole thing of oneness, you know, where you really, really realize that we're all part of the same body. And yeah. it, the Dalai Lama calls it wise selfishness. You know, that when you're helping someone else, you're really helping yourself too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think there has to be those dichotomies, you know. So with like Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement and the non I admired that so much because it's so easy when you're in those positions you can really understand why people were just filled with rage and angry and just want to hurt others, hurt them back, you know? So I think mm-hmm. someone, someone like that, who's coming in that position to me, that's someone who's deeply in touch with his true self. You, you can't act authentically that way from your ego self that comes from your true self. And when you're in connection with your true self, then all of that's possible. All of it. But when you're when you're working out of the ego self, which I don't think of the ego self as a bad thing, I think it's just my conditioned experience in this time and space. You know, you're not going to do that. That's the part of us that feels separate. That's the part of us that feels alienated. So that part's always going to either strike out or strike at itself. That's my opinion. Anyhow, that's how I view it. I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate your openness. <laughs> How does this uh, connect with your uh, four direction system of mindfulness? Can you say something about that? Well, yeah, just like you know, in the martial arts, I created my own sort of uh, system of training with the ultimate goal of having each person that trains with me kind of discover their own expression. So I wanted to do the same thing in Buddhism and. I realized Buddhism had all this stuff, and a lot of people weren't really sharing that part of it. They would share a lot of the philosophy, which is good, but the nuts and bolts part, 
I thought often was missing. And I remember I had lunch when I was studying with my Zen teacher, Bernie Glassman, who was a big deal in the martial arts world. Uh, we had lunch with a guy named Johnny Zinn, Johnny Cabot Zinn. And John was just starting out out of the hospital he was working at there in Massachusetts. He was starting his approach to mindfulness. And I thought to myself after that lunch, I thought, you know, I, I have my own idea about this. I'd like to put this together. And so that's what I did. So the four directions represents an approach to mindfulness that is different uh, in many ways from the way mindfulness is often taught. Mindfulness is often taught as meditation. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's wonderful. Yeah. But, but there's so much more to mindfulness. And it's really found in the first words attributed to Shakyamuni, the historical Buddha, in the Dhammapada, which is a text or scripture, I guess you would say, that is attributed to his sayings. But the very first lines of that book are, all we are is caused by our thoughts. It's built up of our thoughts. It comes out of our thoughts. And so the essence of mindfulness for the Buddha was your thoughts cause everything else. So if you want to free yourself, that's where you have to start. So for me, the four directions is based on that. And it's based on learning how the ego self has been conditioned, the different stages we all go through, then learning some basic practices and beliefs or teachings, I guess you would say, philosophy, and then applying it through things like the four questions that we have where you really learn to take a situation that has thrown you, has hooked you, and you stop and you unpack it mindfully by asking yourself, okay, here's a situation. How was I feeling? What was the thought or thoughts driving that feeling? And is that thought, that strongest thought driving that strongest feeling that came out of that situation, is it clear? Is it based on reality? Is it helping me or is it hurting me? And so then we go through the four questions, which allows you to sort of see and look at that thought and challenge that thought to see if it is clear. And by the time you get to the fourth question, if a person follows the steps, I can guarantee them they'll feel different. Because when you change the way you're thinking, you change everything else. Because everybody, you know, that comes to me for counseling, it's usually because they have something, you know, that they're trying to overcome, anxiety, depression, what have you. And I always try to help them to see that those are the side effects of, of thinking and beliefs that are, that are not clear, that are not helpful. And so that's the four directions in essence, is to help people to challenge the thoughts and beliefs that are not aiding them in experiencing oneness with themselves and others and replacing them with thoughts that are more based on reality, actually. I mean, a big part of what drew me to Buddha's teaching was that it was very rational. It was asking you to question everything, everything, and not trust it because it came from some holy book or from some teacher. I mean, he literally said that. So I always thought that was cool. He sounded like Bruce. <laughs> or Bruce was echoing him. You know? Right, right. <laughs> but so that's the four. So the four directions is just my own approach to mindfulness in the school. The Blue uh, Lotus School is just, it's just my approach to to mindfulness. 
I remember when I was graduating college, and I think you had just published that book, and it was really helpful for me. And Thank you know, you. I'm figuring out my direction at that time, and you know, moving to New York, and uh, really having a lot of ambitions with with what I wanted to do with my life, and where I wanted to go with my career, and how I wanted to start my career off. You know, there was just a whole lot of anxiety and questioning, and you know, just really trying to get a grasp on how to actually lock in to take those steps forward. And, um, you know, for me, that, that that book was just really helpful in deciphering a lot of the inner noise that was happening at that time. And yeah, I've definitely tapped back in, you know, at certain points along the journey as well since then. Um, and it's just been, yeah, really helpful just, you know, for me personally. I'm so glad. I mean, that's that's my raison d'etre. That's my reason for for all that. <laughs> So I'm glad. Have you taken any of these ideas uh, or thought about taking these ideas and put them in a form that is accessible to, say, younger people, like a younger Tony, 10 years old, 12 years old? Uh, you talked about your interest in comic books, for example. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Any yeah. thought that maybe something like this could be in the form of a graphic uh, novel? Or, or, or something? Oh, that would, be, that would be awesome. That's a great thought. I did one book that was designed for kids that it was a very simple book it had an opening chapter for parents and then it was sort of taking our approach for children doing the graphic no, you know version of it or comic version of it that would be awesome because kids do get it i've worked with kids as young as six years old and even though they don't have the cognitive ability to understand all they very much can understand the way i'm thinking is the way i'm feeling so if I look at the way I'm thinking, is that thinking really correct? Is that clear? Is I mean, really look at this, uh, seeing the whole picture here. Yeah. And those kids get it. They get it very quickly. But I wrote that a book called Invisible Sun. And that was a, it was actually illustrated by an artist, a uh, kid's artist. But I think a graphic novel thing would be cool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I would love so, that. So I also actually want to touch on something and get your perspective, both philosophically and then how also people might be able to use whether it's philosophy or even religion such as buddhism or any of your other religious experiences to grapple with some of the scientific news that also just recently came out with the new images that nasa has put out from the telescope that has been able to see essentially to the very early stages of the creation of our universe yeah and in that it is the first, I mean, maybe not necessarily first, but we can mark this as definitely one of the first, if not a very substantial first, in answering a lot of bigger and larger questions that humanity has just had for millennia. Like, where did this entire thing start? What was it like when it started? How did it start? You know, and then and, and mm. the biggest thing of all is, you know, what is this? Mm. And the fact that we're now able to start using science through essentially photography and being mm. able to capture these moments. Granted, they're on a grand scale. Like every dot you see in that image is an entire galaxy with billions of stars, which also then offers billions of planets <laughs> and billions of opportunities of life. Yeah. You know, all of these things start then becoming much more plausible. And so like, I'm curious about your perspective on just that plausibility and the reality of 
what this brings and, and, and what things could be moving forward. Well, I think that, you know, that's what, that was kind of the heart of three principles of oneness. My book was, that I really believe that every culture has had a sense of how things work and why they matter. And our culture is probably the first one where how things work and why they matter became divorced from each other. Because if you look at ancient cultures and traditions, they may not have been completely accurate, you know, in their sort of how things work. But Mm -hmm. there was a sense of harmony between how things work and why they matter. And so I think we've experienced a great sense of alienation there where you have people who think if if they're science oriented, then they can't be spiritual or vice versa. And I think it's important that we start with the idea that science is our form of knowledge. It's a very advanced form of knowledge. And so everything that we discover and everything that we learn really just leads us to more questions, right? You know, it just takes us on a continued wonderful journey of exploration. But I think it's important to always be clear that knowledge in itself is not wisdom. Even if you have a lot of knowledge about things, that doesn't mean you necessarily have connected it to why things matter. Mm-hmm. And so the greatest challenge, I think, with knowledge and in our day and age of science is that it's always, uh, we're always looking for those connections. So, for example, like you talked about those incredible images. And, you know, I think back to the astronauts when they had their first experience of the Earth rise, you know, when they saw yeah. the Earth. I, I think those experiences can be fundamentally transformative they even called it for the astronauts they called it the overview effect a lot of times they would have this sense of oneness from seeing these things and i on the other hand it's a challenge to the ego right so when the ego sees these things it's like oh my god i'm even more insignificant than i thought i was <laughs> like oh man if I, didn't, if I didn't think i mattered much before now you know and yeah. and so I, I think again, that's where you know I want to say that I want to help that person to connect to a different sense of how they look at that. For me, you know, the third principle of oneness in the teachings of Buddhism is that this sense of self that's separate, this sense of self that's limited, is a delusion, and that this interconnected sense of self is boundless. And so when I when I look at those photographs and I see all those galaxies and it's almost hard to imagine, right? All yeah. the possible civilizations and all the possible things going on, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's hard to even kind of put into a, a category. But yeah. for me, it's just like, wow, oneness is even bigger than I thought it was, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, even though I might talk about oneness differently as a human being on planet Earth, I really think that's the other thing we can learn from the universe and science as it teaches about it, is that you know, there are things out there that are universal. And that's for me the most exciting part of it. I mentioned earlier, I was listening to your podcast about Dr. Strange and comic books and that, and I was a big fan of Dr. Strange. He actually came out the same year I was born, by the way, 1963. For me, looking at the natural world, looking at the universe is always inspiring. I'll just throw this out there. Like vampire bats, they have one of the biggest 
brains or neocortexes in among that group of creatures. And if you study them closely, you find that they subsist on blood, right? So they have to go out every night and feed. But not everybody can leave the cave and go feed. Maybe one's injured or one what have you. And so you find out that vampire bats share their blood. So if the, the bat goes out, it'll come back and share its blood with a number, another member of the vampire bat group. And it's like some people are calling it survival of the kindest. That it's kind of there. Even at a very primitive, we might say, level, it's kind of there. And so I think that that's one of the things we can learn from science and from that knowledge is that it's like with humans, like I was saying, you know, we they talk about it as like kin selection, group selection, reciprocity, and things like that. But the thing that you see is that we can move beyond just in-group, out-group. Even though you can see all that stuff in humans, we have the ability to consciously affect our evolution by continually pushing beyond the boundaries of in-group and out-group. So the, for me, when I look at anything like that, some people would say, oh my, you know, I say this in my book, H.P. Lovecraft, the great horror writer, when he looked up at that, he would see those pictures we, you know, you talked about today. Yeah. He would even be more convinced of the coldness and horror of the depths and meaninglessness of it all. Yeah. And then hiding behind one of those galaxy clouds is some evil creature who's only desirous to eat us. So he would kind of look at that and see something different. But that's where I realized it's not about what you're seeing out there. It's it's what you are projecting onto it. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so even, even with wonderful things like that, it still has to come back to the wisdom of what's going on inside of me and how I'm seeing it. And I want to help people to look at those things and say, holy cow, look how big I am. So I don't know if that connected or not, but that's how oh, I... Oh, it landed. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. <laughs> yeah. Well, You I, are connected to something I, much bigger. I start every day. One of the practices I suggest to people is they begin every day and end every day with some sort of devotional practice, even if it takes a couple of minutes. And so for me, every day, I light incense, I go to my altar space, I bow, and I chant, and I pray. And what I say to myself is essentially, it's all about love. It's all about, when I'm alone, love someone. When I'm afraid, love someone. When I feel separate, love someone. When I feel powerful, love someone. It's constantly like we call the Bodhisattva's vow where it's, you, you start the day that way and you end the day that way and it just changes you. It changes the way you face your day. And the little voice of the ego is still there and you just start to look at things differently. You just start to see things not as disconnected but connected. The thing I think you feel like once you start to, to realize it in your own life is you start to get excited about somehow touching others with that and and helping to connect with others that way, especially those that may seem very different from you. But it's a practice. That's the other thing we always say, you know, it's not like it's one and done. It's a daily practice. I light the altar on my butsudan every day. I put it out at night and I light it again the next day. It's something I have to continually do. 
and, and devote myself to. That's that's really uh, that's amazing, Tony. You know, one of the things also that comes to mind as you're talking about this idea of finding inner peace. Uh, you've heard about this in certain classrooms and certain communities where they're introducing young people to the practice of meditation. Mm. Uh, there are all kinds of apps. Can you talk about the practice of meditation and, and the value that you find, not just for yourself, but the potential value that it has for young people who are energized and maybe don't have a certain sense of direction? Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, as you said, you know, meditation, there's, there's so many different ways people do it. I think at heart, for me, meditation is a servant to mindfulness. It's, it's a uh, tool for mindfulness. And, you know, when you look at the Buddha's early teachings, he listed meditation and mindfulness as two things that were part of the Eightfold Path. So for me, meditation is primarily about learning to observe the mind and observe the body without identifying with it. So the basic form of meditation we teach, we call observing meditation. It's very simple, and it's not so important how long a person does it, but it's more important how often a person does it. So basically, I would just tell them, you know, in the beginning, you know, find some quiet place to sit and just start watching yourself, watching and observing your thoughts feeling the sensations for five minutes, 10 minutes. And when you find yourself kind of in an aversion to something that comes up in your thoughts, feelings, or sensations, then just take a deep breath and go back to like just watching yourself breathe. One of the basic things we teach people is just to watch the breath. And, you know, we tend to focus on breathing from the diaphragm area rather than thoracically because that's the center of the body and that's where we breathe more deeply like a singer or a wind instrument person has to learn to breathe from there right so we teach people to breathe from their center in japanese mm -hmm. they call it the hara yeah just watch your breath and for me it's sort of like there's two images that come to my mind one is it's like you're laying in the grass on a beautiful day and you're watching the sky and you're watching the clouds as they pass through the sky. And those passing clouds are your thoughts and your feelings and your sensations. The sky is your mind and the wind is your breath. And so you learn to just observe them. The other one I like is like being in a movie theater. You're watching a movie and it's exciting, right? Or it maybe makes you excited or anxious. Mm -hmm. And then you you sort of you look you sort of look down at your popcorn, or you know you take a sip of your soda, <laughs> and you remind yourself subtly, this is just a movie, <laughs> right? Well, I I think of observing meditation that way. It's learning to say, hey, this is just a movie. These thoughts, yeah. feelings, and sensations, they're experiences I'm having. But here's the biggest point: they're not me. And so you start to identify with a more spacious and boundless sense of self. And for me, that's the most basic form of meditation. The second form of meditation we call abiding. In Japanese, it's shikantaza. And abiding practice kind of naturally comes out of observing. And over time, 
from observation meditation, you naturally find yourself just being, and you're you're not doing anything. You're not even caught up in watching anymore. Mm-hmm. You're just like the sky. You're like the spacious thing that everything moves through, but it's all you. And so you're not identifying with one aspect of it or one thing. The dude abides. Yeah, we, that's what we call it, abiding. You know, and Jeff's my Dharma brother. You know, I know Jeff, and he studied with my teacher. And and sometimes we'll use chanting too. I, I like chanting. Like some people, they don't want to watch their breath; that makes them more nervous. So sometimes we'll teach them to chant. And what you chant is nearly as important as the sounds and and the the gesture of it, because all the mantras or chants are just basic syllabic phonetic sounds. And I think the reason that chants connect with us on a deep level is because when we learn to speak, we sound that way. Ooh, ah, mm, ah. You know, we make those sounds, right? So mantras are all that. They're just making those sounds deliberately. And that vibration, I think, creates a, a sense of calm and... So sometimes instead of just watching the breath, people chant. My own practice is I can sit anywhere now. I can sit with my eyes open. I can do it driving. I can do it walking. I can do it in the middle. One of my favorite places to meditate is in New York City, right in the midst of all the hubbub. I love to just enter into that space right there. You know, yeah, I feel you. A lot of times when I'm in New York and I do have the time, as much as it's annoying, like, you know, amidst it all, like I'll go to straight to Times Square and just be in the midst of everybody from around the world wanting to intersect at a point because anybody and everybody around is possibly from some country, some part of the world, and they're all trying to just take it in. And it's just really cool, just like just seeing people having this intersection of these crossroads in one space. So I, I feel you on that. Oh, yeah. There's a place on the Upper West Side that it's a, it's, it's a very busy street. And there's always lots of people and vehicles and noise. And there's a little bench that sits right in the middle of the street. It's like mm-hmm. a little alcove. And that's, my, that's one of my favorite places to meditate. Yeah. So, I mean, so meditation is a wonderful tool to kind of help you to realize that you're not your thoughts. You you learn that your identity isn't limited to those things. And what it naturally does is it, it it helps you to stop reacting to those experiences. So whether it's a thought or a feeling, a sensation, you know, instead of reacting to it, or even if you do react to it, you sort of stop yourself and say, what is this? And, it just creates a more spacious mind. And that doesn't mean you can't get hooked or it doesn't mean you can't react. It's just that even when you react, there's a part of you that knows you're reacting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yes. <laughs> and you start, to, <laughs> you start to suddenly realize, oh, that's not who I am. You know, <laughs> uh, I'm not that angry thought. I'm not that feeling. Uh, and then, like I say, that I, when I do mine, I'll sit down and I'll chant. And if I'm angry, I'll scream my chant. If I'm sad, I'll I'll cry my chant. If I'm happy, I'll sing it. And sometimes I'll just say it to myself or whisper it. And then I'll just chant. And, and while I'm chanting, I'm offering up everything I am and my life and everything 
back to the universe in gratitude. And then I just do that. And then naturally at some point, nothing's happening and I'm just being. And to me, that's another great lesson is that so much of what pushes us around is the idea that we have to be something. We have to do this or we can't do that. And for me, abiding is just like saying, nope, all I have to do is be. I don't have to justify myself, defend myself. I am. And so it just becomes a one. For me, meditation now is romantic. Like when people tell me like, well, I tried meditating, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> I always think you did it wrong. <laughs> it's like when someone says, I don't like making love. Well, you're doing it wrong. You know, um, <laughs> it's just like, and for me, it's romantic. I, I drop into it all the time, all day long. I'll yeah. drop into these moments like Thich Nhat used to talk about. You know, whenever you hear a, a bell, you know, take a moment to just stop. Well, mm-hmm. I do it all the time, you know, and I think everybody has the capacity to do it. The meditation is, like I said, is it's the joke is it's not what you think. It's not, and, and it's not ultimately about getting somewhere. It's ultimately about just being mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and learning to love that, you know, and and learning to love yourself. And I know everybody says that it's kind of a trope, but man, practicing it, it's a whole different thing Mm. where you just, you won't. And that's where I go back to Bruce. You know, you don't allow others to define you and whether they agree with you, don't agree with you, you know, whether they do it the way you do it or not, nothing outside of me determines or defines me. I define myself. And that, that's the expression that I get from brother bruce amen (laughs) well i have to say something i want to say one last thing i was listening to your podcast that i the one on james brown and something i'm saying in honor to my dad who actually became a very close friend and the great patron of my work but he was a huge james brown fan and a lot of people i just had to say a lot of people wouldn't know that about him they would know it if they knew him they would know it but he was a huge james brown fan and he loved to sing and dance and he was actually pretty good. Wow. And oh yeah. And he he loved Got You and Papa's got a brand new bag. And he had somebody got because he was so into this, whenever you would get into the ranch, he had used to have a horse ranch. When you go in the front door, someone had got him an action figure of James Brown singing <laughs> Got You, you know, yeah. which everybody thinks of as I feel good. And that's what my dad would do. He'd open that door and he'd start doing his dance. He'd start doing that <laughs> shuffle. And, yeah. I love it. I love it. I just had to say that because when I was listening to that podcast, I was thinking of my dad. You know? <laughs> Thank you. Well, shout out to your dad. I, I enjoyed meeting him over the years. Uh, you know, great guy. You know, the relationship between a father and son, I think, obviously, it's the work of, of myths, right? From going way back in time to Odin and Thor and all the way up to the relationship between Luke and Anakin. I think that that relationship is one of the most fundamental relationships that we have in life. And finding a way to bring that into harmony, I think is a major, a major thing in anyone's life. You know, however they come to harmony with that, sometimes they have to find a way of harmony within themselves. They can't do it without but man, that, in my life, that was so important. Yeah. 
you know, to make that effort. That's why I ended up in Harrisburg. You know, I came back because I knew there were things he and I needed to work through and, and it happened. It happened. So, yes. and when I, when I, you know, when I heard you guys doing this, I thought, you know, my relationship to my son is so important to me and we were mm-hmm. so close. I was joking with Ed last night. I said, you know, he still lives up above our, our place and he has like his own apartment there. And he and I get to spend a lot of time together. And I said, you know, Uncle Steve and Papa's podcast is sort of like our conversations late at night, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's how these podcasts started was just... Is that right? Yeah, me and dad having yeah. conversations. And then we were like, you know, why don't we just press record? Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that was the I'm end glad. of that. Yeah. And, that's, and that's how these started. No, I'm so glad you did. Yeah, so. I mean, yeah, it's a, it, you know, as you also mentioned, uh, a product of healing and building connection between father and son and, mm-hmm. and making sure that yeah. that's as solid and pure as yeah. possible. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Amen. I'm going down another thing here, but I, I just want mm-hmm. you to know how much we love your sister. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And I know how much she loved Papa. Uh, oh, my. You know? Oh, my. Yeah, she, she adored you. She would just light up. You know, she just. Oh, yeah. <laughs> did she play a musical instrument as well? Uh, Christine uh, did some piano. Christine had an amazing voice. She was a, she had a beautiful, she was a singer. No instrument. She did play the piano a little bit, but she would sing. And I'm, I'm fortunate. I, I was able to find uh, some cassette recordings when she was just sort of singing for herself. Wow, and and so it's really nice for me at times to just get those out and play them. She absolutely adored you, Papa. She, um, I'm sure you know, you know that. Most and definitely, yeah, yeah. It was just, and we talk about that. You know, every time you and I are talking, Steve, or you know, I say something about you, Papa. You know, my mom or my sister or somebody, and they, that's the first thing they say. Oh, Christine loved him. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so true. It's it so, so true. true. In fact, the 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 order of the dragonfly, the dragonfly mm-hmm. is connected to her. Yeah, Christine was a wonderful teacher. You know, she devoted her life to teaching kids, and in the last part of her life, she you know started two private schools on her own, and they were both directed towards kids who had kind of fallen through the cracks in the system, and so that was her her effort in that part, you know, so she was a great sensei, a great teacher. So originally I didn't have that name. And then when she passed, uh, I renamed it after her because the dragonfly was her main sort of motif and symbol, you know, in the East, the dragonfly, it's similar to the way some people in the West look at the butterfly. You know, it's this idea that you start out in one world and you, transcend into another you know the nymph the water nymph that becomes this flying creature so yeah since she became the the patron of the order you know that's incredible yeah yeah our favorite book together was catcher in the rye we both came to it separately on our own and you know the scene where he has that vision of himself these kids are going to fall off this cliff and catching them as they're coming through this field of rye i mean for both of us that's sort of was our heart you know that's what we want to do with our lives and and she did that magnificently in her own unique way 
Yeah, yeah she's she's right here. They're both in the dojo. Mm. Yeah, That's I keep cool. uh, keep a drawing of my dad that I had done uh, riding one of his horses, and I keep uh, Christine's uh, photo is with the one altar that we have. So, yes, yes, I remember your because your dad. The last time I saw him was during I think an ordination mm. that was taking place. Uh, yeah, and I came down there, and you know everyone was dressed up, and I think your father had joined. Is is, is or, or he yeah somehow connected? Is that, is that oh right? he was that's right. Yeah, well he he you know I can say as we got closer, he became my number one supporter. You know, in terms of he made things very easy for me in terms of being able to accomplish some of the goals I had. Yeah, he was there. That was at the Mountain Sea ceremony where I was being officially installed as the teacher. And it was a wonderful day. And yeah, he really did. I mean, as I said, when he was a kid, he had an interest in these things. And then when I went off in that direction, you know, I think the reason he always really supported that, I think martial arts he supported because he wanted me to be tough. But the spiritual part of it, I think he really, I know the latter part of his life that became really important to him. When we went to Japan together, uh, in 2004, we took an entourage of like a dozen people. My dad, you understand, my dad was not politically correct. My dad had a heart of gold. He was incredibly generous. He was always for the underdog, but he was totally politically incorrect. Like he just didn't have it. I remember we got to Japan and he <laughs> he was like the ugly American, like, you know, not being mean to anybody, but just sort of being outrageously... Like, I remember we were waiting for this. We landed in Osaka and we're waiting for this, uh, you know, sort of shuttle to come because it's, it's a good haul from Kansai Airport to Osaka. And I, I, Evan and I both spoke enough Japanese that we could get around. And the guy was trying to explain to my dad that it would be there in 20 minutes. And my dad did this thing where he gets louder and louder because he thinks <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> somehow volume creates loud. translation. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so he wouldn't wait. So he got us taxi cabs and we got all these taxis, 12 people. And we get to the hotel, and the guy gets out and says, that'll be so many millions of years. <laughs> and my dad about had a heart attack right there. He's like, why? <laughs> you know, and it was hilarious. We, we go to these, <laughs> these traditional restaurants and stuff. I remember we went to this place. Where you get the meat, and you kind of cook it on your own little hibachi there. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's like, wow, I got to do this when I get back. What a, what a gig. You make the customer cook their own food. <laughs> <laughs> and pay for it <laughs> right <laughs> but one of my mentors it was the head of a buddhist school in japan and uh he invited us to mount hie mount hie is like this sacred spot right and it was a wonderful wonderful ancient temples uh cave temple that's 1300 years old and there's an altar in there and I was given permission. We did liturgy in there uh, and the candles apparently. So according to everyone, have never gone out. Every, there's been someone there for the last 1,300 years. I remember wow. sitting in that cave meditating and thinking, gosh, you know, when our country was being started, this temple was already ancient. Yeah. And 
when we were coming, we drove up in taxis, this crazy sort of way up the mountain. And we came down on like a, an incline, you know, like an incline uh, vehicle. I remember the, the, our host was a young priest and his wife. And my dad didn't cry openly very often. You rarely saw it. I did see him cry sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember him standing there as these, you know, in the Japanese tradition, they wave until you're out of sight. Mm-hmm. And, and just the tears running down his face. I saw how much it touched him and, and how much the spirit of it, you know, he really connected. So, yeah, definitely wanted to say that. That's yeah. You know, he always taught me from very, very young, you know, that, you know, to be like in the old ancient language, be no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter where they're from, what they look like, they deserve respect. So I grew up with that, you know, being inculcated that, you know, it didn't matter. And whenever he had the horse ranch, there was one black trainer, Harry Thompson. And Harry was the only trainer, the only black trainer in the entire track out there. And, you know, I knew as soon as we met Harry, he was going to be the guy my dad hired. Mm. And Harry ran, Harry ran my dad's stables. And at the one time they had like 40 horses and, and we became very, very close, like family with Harry. But that's, that's what my dad demonstrated. You know, it wasn't from what he said, it's what he did. Right. And, and I realized that too, that you can't always pay attention to people say, look at their actions, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but he definitely instilled that in me early on. So, So I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Shout out to moms too, you know, you know, my mom to this day, you know, her spiritual practice is always the center. And that's what she taught me that that's the most important thing in your life. And so I, you know, I know that she became, she was a little disappointed when I came out as a Buddhist, but, um, <laughs> and, and you can imagine that'd be rough, you know, for, her, you know, cause that's her tradition and mm-hmm, how important, mm-hmm. yeah. but, but I know that she's seen over the years, the fruits of what has happened, but we, now we can joke about it. And I remember one time sitting in the, um, with my mom raising funds for this Christian's private school. And, uh, we were sitting there and there was a contest of Bible verses. They would read a Bible verse and you had to guess who it was. I won. I knew every single <laughs> one. And I remember looking over at her. She was shaking her head. I said, I know what a waste mom, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking so, of families, just also shout out to, to your brother and sister. Oh, thank you. Adam yes. and Leah. Yeah. Adam and Leah. Yeah, very, very important. You know, and that's the thing, too. You know, you look at a family and you say, okay, all families have their problems and all families have their issues, you know. But I look at the children of my sister, my brother, Christine's boys, you know, you look at the family and there's, they're all good people. They're all loving, kind people. Yeah. And we certainly, you know. Uh, my mom and dad, you know, separated. They had, you know, all kinds of issues, but there was love there that always transcended. And really, it's the fruit. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's the fruit. Yes. And that's not a judgment against those that are having difficulty. I always want to be clear about that. It's not. But, you know, you got to celebrate that. You got to really lift that up and be grateful for that. 
Yes. Because mm-hmm. not everybody has it. You know, and that's that's what I see my role as, to try to be that when people don't have it. Because we all need it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you are that and, and so much more, Tony. Uh, my, my saying now is from one of my teachers. And one of my other teachers I didn't speak about was Alfred Bloom. Mm-hmm. Alfred Bloom was a a major scholar in the Buddhist world. He's considered one of the great scholars of the 20th century. You know, he got his, his degree from Harvard, and then he was the, the proctor of the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard, mm-hmm. and then um, ended up in the University of Hawaii. But he was a, a great teacher of mine, and he has passed too recently, not too long ago. No condolences. But he used to say, Thank you. He used to say, I'm just a foolish being embraced by boundless compassion. And so, and so that's what I say now. I'm just a foolish being embraced by boundless compassion. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Can't tell you how beautiful this has been. And speaking of gratitude, we certainly are are grateful to you to take the time out to dialogue with us on the Style Free Podcast. Uh, Many blessings to you and your lovely, talented family. And uh, thank you. uh, We can't wait to reconnect again. Yeah, I love you guys. Thank you. Love you too. too.